Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies. Today's episode I have been looking forward to all week because I have Mark McNabb and Rob Freeman on the show. Mark McNabb is a TV producer and filmmaker, and he's currently working on a project with Rob called Making Contact. Actually, Mark is the guy behind the scene who's normally filming Rob when Rob is doing his thing. Rob is uh, also known as the UFO Explorer on YouTube and uh, Facebook. Um, Mark and Rob have been traveling the world. I've been over 14 countries so far, uh, and that includes the Irish Seas, Norway, Peru twice, California, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Australia, Canada, and soon they're coming to my neck of the woods, which is British Columbia, and that should be in July. What's amazing about Rob and Mark is that they will take off on an adventure and film the entire thing. But it's not like they're just going out on the field with just a few pieces of equipment. They're going there with a lot of equipment. And some of these locations are very remote. And yet they still manage to bring this equipment out to these places. I've seen them on horseback on their documentaries. I've seen them hiking for so many hours. And yet they're trekking all of this equipment. Making Contact is a series of documentaries that Mark and Rob have been working on at these different locations and different experiences that they're having while they're traveling the world looking for UFOs. Mark, Rob, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you guys on here. Um, it didn't matter how bad my work week was. Uh, I was looking forward to this interview. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure there, Jason. We really appreciate the invite, Jason. Thank you very much for that. So as I'm doing research, uh, I found out that you guys were actually in um, MUFON's top 13 cases for 2017. And this took place in Squamish, BC, at the uh, Stowanis Chief uh, location. Can you explain a little bit about that? Uh, we were on an expedition out to uh, Vancouver, BC to meet uh, Charles Lamroux. We had talked to him for quite a long time and wanted to meet him. He invited us out to Skywatch. And I guess it was the very last day of that little trip. And it was raining in Vancouver. And we thought, well, maybe if we go north, uh, we'll go out of the rain. It was better weather to go north out of Vancouver. And Charles thought he would stay home because, you know, the weather forecast wasn't that great. And uh, we drove up. It was Marcus, Liz, myself, and Breslin. Um, we stopped in a place called Britannia Beach. Uh, Charles had sent us there and thought that might be interesting. There's a mine there. There's an old mine. And quite often UAPs can be associated with mines, depending on the minerals involved. So we drove up there. We drove that area we talked to people we didn't get any sense that there was anything happening there it seemed pretty dry and it just didn't have the feeling to it we stopped into this gift shop and there were two ladies that were running that and we kind of asked them discreetly you know do you get any strange things happening up here and they said not really and uh, they said you know what what do you mean like what we said well you know ufos and they said well nothing really like that here but if you go about another 10 minutes north to Squamish, B.C., they've had all kinds of stuff happen around the mountain there, the chief. 
that's like this monolith stone is very sort of ancient and attached to the uh, connected to the indigenous people. So our, our ears kind of perked up and they said they've seen stuff around the mountain. So we got back in our car, we headed north and we went right by the, you know, that monolith off the side of the highway. It goes straight up. I don't know how many hundred feet. And it's pretty impressive. And then we drove around looking for a spot that we could have a nighttime view of that. And we just, we all felt strong that, yes, we were going to have something happen here. We drove along the old uh, lumber roads, Jason, sort of, you know, in, in near the mountain there. And we came across this one clearing that had a super view of the monolith. And we all looked at each other and said, yes, right here is where it's going to happen. So we got out. We started assembling all the equipment. I think that was something like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And we just stayed right through. We were set up with the vehicle, you know, in a nice spot. It's a bit of a remote area there. Um, it's a logging road. There's other people that will come driving through, but it, by and large, is a pretty private spot. And at that point, I didn't generally leave my cameras running, only because with the number of video cameras and everything, it's a lot of footage to go through after to try to find something. So I did learn my lesson after the Squamish Shore, but uh, at that point, I didn't leave things running. So we were just talking. Marcus and I and Liz, and the equipment was all turned on, all the different cameras, you know, the night vision, thermal vision, full spectrum, infrared, zoom, wide angle, time lapse, you name it. It was all on, but nothing was actually recording. And all of a sudden, Breslin looked over and saw this light moving across the sky. And she said, what's that? And I immediately stopped talking to Marcus. I turned I grabbed my the top of my tripod and I turned it. My first thought was, uh, which camera do I turn on? And uh, because I could see that in a few seconds it was going to disappear, the trajectory it was going on that it was literally going to go into the woods. So I my first instinct was to hit the the zoom night vision, the zoom green night vision. Night vision is like infrared, but at the near infrared. Uh, level and it's um, you know it's the green sort of color and I managed to get it right in the screen right away and it's like my heart's just pounding and I'm following it along and I got it and I thought wow you know now I didn't know what it was you know afterwards you always debunk and even when you're capturing something your brain is already debunking like what is this is this a plane with its landing lights on is this the ISS is this a satellite i mean what is it is it a drone so i think uh it was only like 10 seconds that i managed to capture it um it only took me like two or three seconds to actually get it in the frame and then i followed it and as it you know goes into the woods i'm like oh because my thought was whatever this is it's going into the woods this cannot be a plane it can't be a drone it can't be the iss you know, what is it? So we were pretty excited about that. Um, we all saw it. It was kind of like a yellowish color. It was big. It was bright. And it made no sound. And then right away we, we replayed it. And uh, we looked at it. And it's like, wow, this is, this is quite the capture. 
And, you know, Charles, the poor guy, he hadn't come with us. I mean, he was the guy that we came out to see and to Skywatch with. But so I thought since he was the guy that sent us north, uh, it was my obligation to just do a send him a little clip. So I immediately sent it to Charles, got him on the phone. He right away believed it was authentic, but he did his research to see if the ISS was nearby, what planes might be nearby, and it was nothing. He said the ISS would not be able to be seen from our location. And uh, we were pretty excited about that. And I think the next day uh, we went home. Uh, we contacted Dave at MUFON and he launched an investigation. Um, he, he came up with the conclusion after extensive research that this was unknown. Um, we had many people trying to say it was the ISS. We actually went back a couple months later or so and set up our equipment again. And we, uh, went through a dry run of where the ISS would be. We have apps that you can retroactively go back and see and plot on, you know, uh, uh, like street view, like, you know, real-time view of what you're looking at, like 3D, augmented reality, I guess you'd call it. And we tracked that the ISS for that night would, would never have been able to be seen. It would be behind the mountain and below the level of the horizon the entire time. So, you know, nothing so far has been able to debunk this. When you look at the actual video, um, the night vision zoom, you can see the trees lit up in front and behind the light. So uh, people have said, oh, it was a drone. Well, who would risk sending their drone into the woods? We did not hear any noise. If it was a drone, we would have heard the, the sound of a bee, you know, like, uh, like the drones make. Um, you know, nothing so far has been able to, yeah, they're loud. So nothing, nothing so far has been able to debunk it. And, you know, the MUFON investigation concluded it as being unknown. So nothing that we know of. So, you know, we call it the Squamish Orb. We really don't know. We, you know, it appears to be a plasma orb. I think Mark, maybe you can jump in and give some details about the size that Dave calculated it out to be and so on. Yeah, I've actually just brought up the um, the case number for this one <clears throat> in particular. Um, and, and it kind of goes through through everything. I mean, as you know, Jason, being part of MUFON, being an investigator yourself, they break everything down into the physical evidence. You know, they, they do the weather. They do where the local airport military bases are. Um so this this actual sighting <clears throat> with the use of like um, you can correct me Rob if I'm wrong but you know the use of the trees you know the distance from our from our camera to to where the trees are all that kind of thing it was concluded that it would have been six to eight feet wide you know so a, a fair width you know and 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 uh, so that was something that was you know pulled into the investigation of it. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it definitely has become the the signature sighting as far as uh, you know things that we've experienced in the field. Yeah, I took a uh, I took a look at the video myself, and um, it's cool because it's too low to be the ISS because it's flying in front of the mountain and right above the treetops. Um, and if it is a plane, well, it's risking you know very low altitude. So, yeah, that one is, I mean, it's an amazing capture. Yes. And uh, Jason, um, 
if you pay particular attention to that video, what really got me, and that's why you hear me say, oh, because you actually see it go into the woods, like below the level of the trees. Um, so it's, and it lights up the trees that it's in front of. And you'll also see other trees kind of hide it. So to me, that kind of sealed the deal that it couldn't be all the things we know uh, and why Dave rated it as unknown. I mean, it just, to this day, we cannot explain what this was other than theories that perhaps it was a plasma orb. And, and you know, I've gotten badly criticized with all the cameras I have on the WMD, you know, weapon of mass detection or weapon of mass debunking, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they said, you know, with all that heavy-duty, expensive equipment, how come you only got one video? Well, you know, these days I, I let the cameras run, and they're all synchronized running together. So if it would have happened today, I would have had it on all the cameras. But at that time, like I say, I didn't leave things recording. I only pressed record when there was something. Because the amount of footage you've got to go through each night, like it's literally 50 hours of footage to go through for just, you know, a small sighting. But um, uh, once again, you know, the camera that I actually chose was the one that actually caught it. And it was only like 10 seconds of footage. So I even thought when I was scanning with it, I was moving the tripod head with the sighting, which other cameras should I turn on? But I thought if I take my attention for a second away from the screen, because this is telescopic, uh, I'm going to lose this sighting and not get anything. So it's kind of like, do you want something or do you want to risk more cameras and then get nothing in the end? So I'm actually quite happy that we we do have it in this uh, night vision. And once again, when Dave looked at everything, for example, night vision will cause lights to appear bigger than they really are. Uh, he took all this into account. He, he asked me, you know, the exact uh, millimeters of the scope, the zoom of the scope. Uh, he had me plot on the Google map where it was that we estimated the object to be, how far we were away from the tree. He had me give him a lot of detail on exactly where we were located. Like we have a GPS plot right to the exact spot that we were sitting with the cameras and he was able to, you know, estimate the size of the trees by how far we were away from the trees and the magnification of the scope. And, and it was on that basis, he estimated the size of that orb. Yeah. We're, we're, we're talking about uh, Dave Palachuk, which is the national director for Canada. Uh, and uh, no, he, he's good. This is not his first rodeo. I think he's got a background in engineering and he teaches at university. And I think he also had like a security clearance, like he's uh, also in securities as well. Yes, he does. And, he, and his role before he became the uh, director was chief investigator for Canada. So he's researched out a lot of stuff and he knows what he's talking about for sure. So if people go to your Facebook or YouTube channel, they'll see this insane tripod that you've put together. The one with, uh, I think it's got like four 
uh, monitors and like six cameras attached to it. And uh, you haul this thing everywhere you go. Yeah, we travel around the world with it and it evolves and it changes uh, depending on where we're going. And uh, since that video of the Squamish Orb, I've, I've pared it down a bit only because, you know, some of the stuff that's on there rarely gets used. So it's like, why have it on there every time? Right now, uh, you know, what we'll be taking, for example, to BC. Um, when are we leaving, Mark, for BC? We leave on July the 8th, uh, 16 days in total. Yeah, we're there for 16 days. And what I'll be taking for the WMD for that is the big thermal in the middle, the uh, zoom and wide angle night vision, and then there's a zoom um, video, like visible video. And um, I think that's it that's going to be on that camera. And then now I've got a side tripod that has four cameras on that one is fixed that has um uh it has visible time lapse it has infrared time lapse it's got a uh, full spectrum video that runs in full in uh um you know real time wide angle and it's got a wide angle night vision on it as well so there's four cameras there and i think there's uh, how many cameras did I say on the other one? Like four cameras. So there's there's eight there's eight cameras all together. Plus, going to take out a third tripod that has um, full spectrum time lapse, and we're just going to point that up at either it's got a zoom as well. We'll point that up at the Pleiades. Some people say they see craft coming from the Pleiades, so. We're going to have that one running in time lapse for the evening just at that point. So there actually will be three tripods, the, the WMD and then the mini D, we call it, and then just this one camera tripod. And I want to emphasize, sorry. Yeah, I want to emphasize that while, yeah, I'm the technical guy, there's a whole nother side to this, Jason. Um, we have found on many occasions that if you have the guns out, there won't be anything to shoot. Uh, it's almost like they pick and choose what you're going to get to film. Uh, so what we do is quite often, half of the time when we go out, we will leave all the cameras at home. And that's a very difficult thing for me to do. Um, but we've had some of our best experiences and sightings when we leave the cameras at home. It's almost like, now I cannot verify this, but it's just a feeling I get after repeated experiences. But I have the feeling, the sense that, once again, they decide what you're going to be able to film. Because, you know, many people are criticized and say, you know, with all the high-tech stuff we have in the world, why the heck aren't we getting top quality sightings of craft, including windows and ETs and beings and everything? Well, you know, if these races are, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ahead of us, do you think they're going to get caught with their pants down? No way, Jose. They, they really, I believe, are in charge of the agenda here. You know, they're... They're the ones that are going to say when you can get footage and when you can't. For example, 
we were in Cusco, Peru. I had all the equipment set up. And I said to Marcus, you know, I'm just going to take everything down. I'm going to turn it off and let's do a meditation and try to make contact. We did that. I disconnected everything, put it away on the top of a mountain in Peru. You know, the nearest big city is Cusco. And just like when we were in Australia, we took our iPhones after the meditation and just started snapping photos into the dark. And, you know, I took about 80 or 100. Marcus must have taken the same. But then off to the distance, there was lightning happening. And we looked at each other and we thought, you know, we're on top of a mountain with, you know, metal like the car. We've got a tripod albeit it's laying on the ground now, but there's, we didn't feel safe to stay up there any longer with this storm coming. And we put everything away and we had no time to review the pictures. The next day we were heading to Machu Picchu. And the following day we were at Machu Picchu all day. That night, because the monument, you know, that whole area closes at 5 p.m., we had several hours to, to just veg out. And I took out all the photos from that night on the mountain. The second photo I looked at had an amazing craft in it with complete detail and everything. Now, I don't know if, Mark, you can quickly send that to Jason while we're talking. I can. Okay. Um, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing in my eyes, Jason. Now. When I looked at the meta, meta data or data of the photos, it was pitch black. And yet several of my pictures, the first pictures, my flash had been disabled. Okay. Now, here's the thing. You'll see the picture in a minute when it comes through. Yep. I'm going to give it to you right here. Once. We, we didn't see anything with our eyes. Okay. The picture that you are going to see looks to be in the ultraviolet range like it's got a bluish color to it and we hypothesize or theorize, we theorize that you know we know for a fact that iPhones and, and camera phones phones and cameras uh, cameras in the phones can see a little bit past visible for example if you hold your remote control for your TV in front of your lens on your iPhone camera, you'll see it light up, especially on the front-facing camera. Yet, if you look at that uh, remote control with your eyes, you will not see the LED light up. It's infrared. Your camera can see it. Okay, it's the same with ultraviolet. So the iPhone can see a little bit into the ultraviolet range and a little bit into the infrared range. So we believe that although we did not see that craft because it was likely ultraviolet, the camera caught it. And that was the second picture I saw when I was reviewing all these pictures. And once again, when I looked at the metadata, the, the flash had been disabled. This craft was so bright in the invisible ultraviolet range that it disabled my flash. Now, get this. I, now, we didn't know also that we stumbled upon a very ancient site where there was a moon temple. We didn't know that at the time. But anyway. Uh, there may be a connection between that craft that was caught right at that site and the, the ancient moon temple of the indigenous people. But uh, I have posted that picture on sites 
and I have actually been thrown off uh, Facebook pages and websites for posting bogus material. Now, I can tell you on my mother's grave and may God strike me dead that that is not bogus material. It was what the camera actually caught. But because we didn't have live video, it's very... You know, it's very easy for somebody to take a picture and Photoshop it and make it look like any way you want. Okay, even video is easy to, uh, you know, alter. But I can only tell you that we had that experience. Uh, the camera caught it. We didn't see it. And I can only tell you that it happened after we put all the equipment away. You know, I've got all the expensive equipment to capture this stuff, like infrared, full spectrum, visible. Uh, thermal, you name it. But, you know, against my own will, I put it away half of the time so that just in case they're going to be there but won't, don't want their picture taken, you know, we still want to experience and we still want to have, you know, we, we want to experience um, the object in the sky. We want to experience making contact with ETs. And we want to document it, but only if they allow. You know, if it comes to either having the experience or taking your camera, but you're not going to get anything, we'll take the experience every time. Now, I wanted to ask you guys, most ufologists, um, they end up being UFO investigators because of a childhood sighting or experience. Uh, at least that seems to be the case for most everybody that I've met. So, uh, Rob, I believe you've had an experience when you were 12, when you were living in Sarnia. But, Mark, I was wondering if you had a similar experience uh, as Rob. I'll be really honest, Jason. Like, before this, no. You know, uh, did I see Close Encounters of the Third Kind when I was nine years old? Yes. You know, was I affected by, like, I've been a filmmaker my whole life. So <clears throat> that film... You know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind combined with E.T., I mean, that was an influence on me. I, you know, did I enjoy being in my backyard and looking up into the stars and thinking about life on other planets and everything? Absolutely. It wasn't really until Rob sat with me in late 2014, we were making a film together. And, you know, in between takes, he just told the story um, of what had happened to him when he was 12 years old, but he'd had two things happen to him. And, and the first one was very classic, very conventional. It'd been written up in the paper. He had seen it. It's a very, very wide known story now, you know, on, 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 you know, different people that we've talked to. It was the second story that appealed to me as a filmmaker. So maybe this is my kind of experience through him because it resonated with me that he went up onto the roof of his parents' home little one story shimmied up an antenna with a friend of his with a little makeshift sky watching kit, you know, compass, walkie talkie, pad of paper, you know, and that really resonated with me. The story of that, the feeling of the visuals, I just got visuals of these two little boys on top of a roof, looking at, looking up into the stars wanting to have an experience. So that took me back to when I was a kid you know, I will say, I can say that safely that it took me back to when I was like nine or 10 and watching those kind of movies about K2 
kids experiencing, you know, children experiencing something that has a profound effect on them. Because it did have a profound effect on Rob. It was 50 years later that he started to kind of have a realization of the impact that that had on his life. You know, that he was like, you know, he ended up creating an app you know, called Project Capture, which was an app to to help people if they, anywhere in the world. This is all precursor to, to what we're doing. He came to me and he told me about his app, how it would, you could record UFOs in real time, you could post them, you could do all these different kinds of things. And I thought, wow, what, you know, I have a lot of respect for Rob. And I, and I thought to myself, what a, <clears throat> what, you know, what, what inspired you to do that? You know, why would you want to do that? And that was part of him telling me this story. And then when we decided, you know, we literally sat in a restaurant one day and I had spent several months, Rob knows, you know, (laughs) remembers this story, but um, I had spent several months investigating, researching, doing what I do kind of as a filmmaker, other people in the world who had wanted to make contact. This was a very willing decision. You know, I want to make contact. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to study consciousness, meditation. I'm going to raise my frequency. I'm going to, this is how I'm going to approach this. And there are groups and pockets of people all over the world, you know, through South America, through Europe, Australia, the different places that we went to, even in the beginning, were to connect with these people. And and I came to Rob and I said, This is what we're going to do. This is, you know, I think this could be pretty exciting. And Rob's first question was, so do you think that they, you know, they actually made contact in the kind of the way that I did? And I think I I said, yeah, I really do. I said, what puts a person out on a beach? What puts a person in the middle of a field? What puts a person anywhere with a conscious effort to do this? And it was like, okay, we, we decided to do this. And we started off very conventionally. You know, we, we, we went into, we went to Area 51. You know, this is, you know, uh, we went to Area 51 and we, we visited the touristy spots and went to Phoenix and started talking to people about the Phoenix Lights incident. Um, went into California because there were a lot of ufologists, you know, enthusiasts, UFO enthusiasts in California. We spent time there. And we just became, it was like breadcrumbs, you know, it was just like breadcrumbs, you know, we just, we would just like go from one place to the next and, and we would learn something, you know, something would come from that, you know, whether it be just a piece of information, you know, and it was for the first year or so, Jason, we didn't really, we were kind of, we were learning, you know, we were fascinated and we were learning, but we were evolving. So by the time we actually got to Australia and Peru, about a year and a half in, two years in, our thinking was a lot different than it is now. You know, like our thinking now is, you know, you have to suspend the suspend disbelief and you have to understand that, you know, if you create that consciousness connection, you know, like Rob has mentioned perfectly, that puts the equipment away sometimes. You know, so I know that's not exactly the answer <laughs> you were looking for, but, you know, these are my motivations. Like, was I influenced as a child? No, but I kind of was. But the biggest influence came from being influenced by Rob's personal experience and that 
holding a special place for me so that when we went out there and started to talk to people and these, you know, the ordinary experiencing the extraordinary, we were just like them. They were just like us. You know, we have no agenda. Like Rob and I have no agenda other than we want to make contact. And that's why we connect with the people we do. So that's how we are today. And uh, Jason, I, uh, I think what did it for Mark, that second experience that I had where we went up on the roof, we were just, my friend and I were just ready to leave. And I was just saying to him, because it was like in April of 1966, and I said, you know, I don't think we're going to see, and as I said, the the word see, I don't think we're going to see anything. We had hundreds of lights go across the sky, and they went from one horizon to the other in literally a second or a second and a half. We looked at each other. We could hardly talk, and we said, what is it? I don't know. And then literally 30 seconds later, hundreds of lights went across the sky back again in the other direction. Yeah, 14 countries. We actually, I'll send you something, Jason. I haven't even sent it to Rob yet, but we had this really great map maker, (coughs) excuse me, do like a plotting. Like it's this great big world map where we he's done all this wonderful work. I can't wait to show it to you, Rob. It's all this wonderful plotting of every place we've been in the world. And and we're 14 countries and we're over 50 different areas, like 50 different cities, towns, villages, you know. Um, yeah, pretty grateful, pretty amazing. Yeah. If you connect all the dots, does it spell E-T? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to look at that, Rob. <laughs> Just a quick break from our podcast. I want to give a shout out to Zencaster, which is a program I've been using for a while now. It's free to use and what allows me to record separate channels for each one of my guests. Unlimited. They're also working on a video app right now that will allow you to record separate MP4 and MP3 files. And it allows you to edit this program afterwards to make the best podcasting interviews possible. I highly recommend that you use them. I am promoting them for free because I believe in their products. All right, back to our scheduled programming. Now, I was going to ask you guys, you guys end up in countries that are uh, not as into uh, UFOs, maybe as other countries. Uh, I was just wondering if you guys like met anybody there that were into uh, ufology or if the culture was... Uh, more embracive of uh of the ufo phenomenon i would say just quickly and rob can can follow up too we have found that it's kind of tight in north america there are ufologists and there are it's a lot of good research being done um but there it could be different this could be changing a good thing but you know through north america it's kind of a very hush hush very hush hush kind of deal where when we went to South America, it was such an eye-opener. Like, we were literally on a beach in Playa Yaya, you know, just, you know, in the Chilka area. And walking down a beach, and there were a couple of guys just, you know, painting, painting like a cottage, like a like a cottage on, on the beach. And, you know, we had someone with us, Liz, who could speak Spanish, and we walked right up to them. I had my camera rolling. 
And I and I remember Rob and I just saying, hey, let's just talk to them and see if they've seen anything because Playa Yaya is Playa Yaya and there's lots of different things that have supposedly come out of the water and things. They didn't know us, Jason. They didn't have a clue who we were. But we came up, it was asked of them, and within 10 seconds, it's like, oh, yes, this, this came out of the water, and it lit up, the, you know, lit this up, and it did this and this and this. And they, they're just painting the whole time they're talking to us. This was as matter-of-factly as you could possibly imagine. This wasn't a thing where it was like, ooh, I, I you know, I, I can't, I can't talk about, I can't talk about, you know, UFOs. You know, I can't talk about that. That could, that could affect my job. That, that could be me. Maybe somebody will look at me like I'm a crazy person. You know, for talking about where we've actually had people here in North America say, oh, I just can't be known to, be, I can't be talking about it can't talk about that stuff you know like you know i got a reputation i'm a doctor i'm a i'm a lawyer i'm a this or that this is going to affect my livelihood we've had generals and and army guys in peru sit on uh on uh couches and sing like birds just sing you know everything that they know oh this came over the air force base and if you come down to my office i'll bring out all my paperwork because in in the in the South American countries, not and I'm not saying just in South America, but in the South American countries, for us, this is very widely accepted. Yeah, I've seen that uh, Chile is actually quite open with their uh, population about the UFOs. They share everything they've got. The public shares everything that they've got, um, and it seems like it's a lot more open to the idea that they want to find out what these things are, where do they come from. Um, as in the North, we're a little bit more conservative on that front. People keep secrets. It's funny because, uh, yeah, the delay on this thing here. It's funny because, you know, the one fella who was head of the investigations for Peru, we were investigating him. I was right there. And uh, Mark said, what? You know, you seem to be telling me a lot of secrets. Why would you be telling all of this? And uh, the guy responded, why wouldn't I tell you? Like they, like it's not secret in those countries. Like it's just information like any other information. They do not attempt to hide it. They embrace it. It's been with them in their culture since maybe their country began. It's so different in South America than it is here, Jason. Like it's all open and you talk to just about anybody there and somebody in their family has had an experience and they all talk about it freely. It's such a refreshing approach that they have to it down there. Yeah, and we love South America for sure. You know, we've been to Peru a couple times. Uh, we've been to Chile a couple times. Um, you know, Costa Rica and Central America. Um, where else? We've been Brazil. We were to go to um, Argentina. We had a, a trip to what Argentina and what was the other country? Bolivia, Bolivia and Ecuador. Yeah, but we had to cancel that. We were ready to leave on the Tuesday and the Saturday, you know, they came out with the advisories around COVID not to travel. So we were we were almost all packed, ready to go when we had to cancel our trips there. But South America is definitely where it's at. And I, I would even complement that with the fact that the thing that actually usually drives Rob and I to go off to different places 
are are the paths you know are basically to follow the path less less traveled you know what i mean we we like going off the beaten path we like going off grid as we say like you know um we'll get we'll get the call or the email or the message from the farmer who has seen something in his field the last five nights in a row he doesn't understand what it is this farmer has no agenda there's no agenda there's no book there's no movie there's there, there, there's nothing that you know he he's just found out about us and what we have become and we're very proud of this we have become kind of the every person approach to the ufology to to, to the world of ufology it's like we will go to that small town you know in you know in, in the middle of Huascaran we will go to Yungay we will we will go up a mountain to 14,000 feet and and feel the altitude and camp for a couple of nights because we know that when it comes to contact that it it can be those intimate kind of quieter experiences where you have that happen even the one that we've got, we're really excited about, Jason, this is kind of how we hooked up with you. Um, we're off to British Columbia in less than two weeks. And where are we going? Well, we're going to camp on Powell River. We're going to take a helicopter to the top of Sail Mountain, you know, so that we can spend three nights where they've had a lot of different, you know, um, experiences and sightings. We really love going off-road because, that seems to create an experience that we wouldn't normally get. You know, we, we would go to the more predominant hotspots. There's a lot of them online. Here are the top 10. Well, we've done seven or eight of those top 10 now. Like we can look at those top 10 and I can say they're on our map. Yep, we've been there. But now it's time to go deeper. Now we want to go to the, the places that have deeper connections. What's insane is uh, seeing the amount of like equipment that you guys bring out to these remote locations. And this equipment is not for the faint of heart. Like I'm jealous at the amount of equipment that you guys have. Like I don't even understand how most of that works. Um, there's got to be some some difficulties or uh, like complications, technicality issues in traveling with this kind of equipment. From a logistical point of view, it's all packed up and put into my suitcases and carry-ons and Mark's carry-on and whoever else is with us, their carry-on, more expensive stuff. You know, I'll spend a couple days carefully packing it all up with bubble wrap. And, you know, if we go out of the country, I have to use um, a special, what's the name of that document, a Carnet document I have to use. So, so that every piece has to be checked out of Canada. And then when you go to the country, they have the right to check every piece and check it off so that you don't have to pay taxes as if you're bringing it in to sell. And then when we leave the country with all that equipment, we use the Carnet document again to check out of that country and to check back into Canada with all this expensive equipment. But logistically, too, you know, we like to... Well, we like to try to stay at two or three nights per location because when we travel, we have to break all the equipment down and repack it. Now, it's not packed quite as meticulously as when we go on the airplane, but it still has to be packed up and put it into the vehicle. Or sometimes we're flying to another spot in the same country. In that case, it's packed up in the same meticulous manner. 
And then, you know, for the next three nights, where are we going? If it's by car or whatever, we have to take it all out and unpack it. And we'll have our two or three nights and then once again, pack it all up. But as I say, you know, we will try half of the time not to use the equipment. Because that's when we really, we really hit pay dirt. It's kind of a oxymoron or something. It's like you got all this equipment, but the best sightings are when you don't use it. Now, did you get that picture coming through at all, Jason? I did. Uh, yeah, there's sort of like a, um, you can see in the picture, it's a, a shape, but it's it looks mechanical. It doesn't look like it's a flare from a camera. And there are some lines uh, going through it. It almost reminds me of like a, a razor. Uh, and it's got like a, a square in the middle. So yeah, I would say that this, this is a really good, uh, good picture. I was down at a conference in Alabama where Lou... Elizondo was speaking. This was now, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. And I actually met him there and um, I got a chance to talk to him. And I showed him that picture. And I asked him if he could shed any light on that. You know, he took about 30 seconds analyzing it. And he says, Rob, you know, I cannot say this is 100%, but to me, it looks like something that's either materializing or dematerializing and he said what you're seeing here may not be the craft itself but the energy signature or imprint left in the atmosphere when it was leaving that's what he thought now of course we know that lou knows a lot more than he's allowed to speak about and he was very careful in taking 30 seconds to to analyze and choose what he was going to say to me but he was pretty convinced that that was the energy imprint that an interplanetary craft left as it was likely leaving the area so it's not the craft itself that's just the ions of the you know oxygen molecules or whatever being excited of the atmosphere uh, being charged, and, and the imprint, the energy imprint left in the atmosphere, much like, you know, when a jet goes over, it leaves a vapor trail. Um, or, you know, some people like to say chemtrails. We don't want to go down that road right now. But um, that is sort of a signature left by the jet as it passes through the sky. And they, he felt that this was the imprint, energy imprint. Now, you mentioned that you don't uh, always use uh, the gear that you bring up there, but is there something that you would consider like a central or crucial piece of equipment that you think um, the budding, you know, or newbie investigator should definitely have in their possession? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, okay. The things that I've taken off the WMD was just some of these things are more for fun. I had a reverse telescope that had a LED light hooked up to, well, basically just an iPhone attached with a Morris code app that was shining a beam up into the sky and I would put messages. So that was really just for fun. Um, you know, first of all, you've got to make sure you have a craft in your sight if you're going to beam that up. But, so you know, all these things add weight for travel and extra time for assembly and maintenance and everything else. So I took that off. 
I had a wide angle color thermal scope that I took off. Uh, I had a theodolite that I took off. That tells you what angle you're at. I found that too much is just too much. Like, it, you, you know, you got to think about all this stuff. You got to operate it all. You got to carry it. You've got to assemble and disassemble it all. And the, and the last thing I had was a super zoom uh, uh, infrared um, scope or camera. The problem with that is you've got problems with light, you know, with the zoom being so strong, you don't have enough light into it to capture. And it's so zoom that you've got to be on the exact craft miles and miles and miles away. You even touch the tripod, just tap it with your finger and you've lost it. So that was kind of impractical. It's like mounting a telescope to your tripod and, and trying to see, just move your tripod around and trying to see the rings of Jupiter in a second or whatever, you know. So once again, this, the stuff that's on there now and on the second fixed tripod, I, I deem all of that essential. And that is like on the WMD, it's the zoom thermal. So it's far infrared. It measures heat and, and puts images together using heat, that end of uh, infrared. So that I deem essential. We've, we've captured various different things in that one, including a craft over the Irish Sea that Mark recently put on YouTube uh, on the channel. Um, and, you know, the wide angle infrared is for moving your tripod around and trying to catch something. So that's super useful and needed. If there's something flashing in the sky, you'll pick it up right away in the wide angle zoom or wide angle infrared night vision. Uh, the zoom night vision is the one that captured the Squamish orb. So that's the most useful one right there. Um, and all of this is attached to a iPhone for recording. And then, of course, you know, the visible zoom. What does it actually look like to your eyes? So those are the things that are on the WMD that are deemed necessary and very useful. On the fixed tripod, it's so cool to have the time lapse. It takes 30-second shots in two different cameras, both uh, infrared, black and white infrared, and color visible. And we have seen so much on there that we never saw with our eyes. We will see, you know, you capture all kinds of meteorites and shooting stars, of course, but we capture things that are slowly coming on and slowly going out in the sky, which your eye never captures because you don't notice it slowly coming on and slowly going off. So that was a big eye opener with the time lapse. Um, and the, uh, the full spectrum video wide angle is akin to the wide angle night vision, except that it's in full spectrum in real time and video. So captured some pretty neat things on that that don't see with your eyes also. And then of course, I also have a wide angle night vision camera running the whole time on the fixed tripod because I have the same camera on the WMD, but you know I can be turning that tripod around where the fixed one, we have a number of cameras pointing at a wide area of the sky for the whole night to capture. So for me, all of that's necessary, you know, but for anybody else, I, you know, really, because the 
Squamish orb was captured in the zoom night vision. That would be the one to get. And, you know, go with visible time lapse and set your exposures at 30 seconds and just let it run for the whole night and point it at a sky where you really have a strong feeling you might see something. And you'll be surprised in the stuff you pick up there. So that's two cameras. Uh, now, Mark, uh, working with uh, Rob being such a techie, have you learned quite a bit from Rob at this point? Like, were you familiar with this equipment? I, I get a, I get a, a new education about once every couple of months. You know, I <clears throat> Rob's uh, great as far as he's always trying new things. You know, like even just we did a, a short little two day expedition up in uh, Tiverton, and you know, again working with Dave Palachuk. And, and um, he had, you know, he's got that astrophotography background. And uh, so he had new equipment out there, new ways of, of, of filming, you know, in the sky, getting different constellations, star systems, things like that. So it's always evolving. I mean, I remember when we had like a P900, you know, like just a, you know, just great camera, you know, uh, 20, it was 83 to, one, you know, telephoto, um and it seemed like each expedition would introduce a new piece of technology, like each major expedition. But it would also seem like each expedition that we had the new technology on, the technology would be kind of come become part of a crazy story attached to it. You know, there'd be some kind of a very strange set of events that would lead to a moment or like a, a revolution, like a, like a revelation or something like, Rob had mentioned, you know, when we went to the Irish Sea, I remember, I'll never forget that because we'd spent, we were only in Europe for eight days. It was a jam-packed expedition. And we, and we literally road tripped it from, um, from Scotland through England to, to Wales, to Ireland, back up into, into uh, Scotland to fly home. And Rob had got this, you know, the thermal scope and was working with the thermal scope for the first two days. You know, of, of, of us being there, he was just playing with it because it, I just remember it had come a little bit later and, and but we, we got it and we were excited. So we were all learning, all learning about what it could do and, and you know, heat signatures and, and all that kind of thing. And then when we got it, sorry about this, Rob, I have to tell this story because it, it has a happy ending. Um, we came to our first location and, and, and Rob set it up. And he pointed it up in the sky, and as befitting as so many other moments that we've had, he saw an object that could not be seen optically. You know, like so I've kind of learned that too. I guess that's my learning process. It's like optical versus thermal versus infrared. You know, what are the properties? What are the technical properties? Which is good when you're editing too, right? Because you can you you get these kind of cool picture and picture moments. And and I'll never forget Rob seeing it, but at the time, because it was so brand new. He didn't have an SD card reader hooked up to it. Oh, no. Right? It is. It absolutely, Jason, is an oh, no moment. But what ended up happening was that was a super tr big trigger for Rob because then it was like, well, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to make sure I have this. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have this. So it was kind of a learning moment. Two days later, two days, two short days later, we're in Wales and we're on the Irish Sea, and the decision was made to skip dinner and go right down to the water. And then Rob gets an object over the Irish Sea in the thermal that can't be seen optically. 
which I still consider one of our top five sightings. You know what I mean? It's one of our top five moments where using this new technology, like Rob has literally got his master's now in cameras, you know, because he's spent, it's like he's gone to school, you know, for five and a half years and he's got, he's, he's got his doctorate in all things camera. And it's funny how he, you know, it's, it's funny. And it's, it's kind of a signature thing. We call it the, as we, as, as he's mentioned, we call it the weapon of mass detection, but we all also call it the weapon of mass debunking because we have seen flares come out of the backs of military jets. You know, people look up at that in the sky and they go, Oh my gosh, it's 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 powering up, it's flashing, it's flaring, it's 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 extraterrestrial, it's it's an ET craft. Then Rob and I, whoever's with us, go back to a room and it's like, oh look, I can see the plane flying away. So we can see that because of the camera technology. So we pride we take a lot of pride in that. That's been the last it was always very difficult. I think Rob will concede to this too. It was always very difficult on us to go, oh, you think you have something. But then you just run every analysis across it. Satellite, rocket body, plane, anything. You just run every test against the technology. And you understand that in the almost six years that we've been doing this, we only have, what, what did we see, Rob? Like three or four really good ones. That we sit there and say, well, we can't debunk it ourselves. And we spend more time figuring out what it isn't as opposed to figuring out what we think it is. No, it's absolutely true. And, and the truth is, Jason, that, you know, I think even MUFON says that approximately 95% of the sightings can be explained. And we have found that, too. You, know, you go to these CEF, CE5 groups and, you know, everything in the sky is an ET, it seems. But over the years, with filming this stuff we've been able to debunk for example you know you might see one light flash that's all people saw yet when i play all the equipment back i'll see that it was flashing all the way across the sky it was exactly 2.38 seconds between flashes so you know not a hundred percent but it was likely a rocket body that was rotating every 2.38 seconds as it goes across the sky so you're getting that one side that has the the mirror finish reflecting the light to the ground and the one big flash that people saw was when the mirror was in such a position that it shined it right down to where the people were but the other flashes across the sky the main flash is appearing somewhere else, but it's still reflecting a certain amount of light to us that only the camera equipment got. So, you know, people would say, oh, that's an authentic ET power up. It's a flash. But it's like, but wait a minute, guys. I have the flash occurring every 2.38 seconds, from one horizon to the other. And rocket bodies rotate at various different speeds. Some may, you know, turn around every 2.38 seconds. Others may take a full 10 seconds to rotate around to the same spot as it's traveling around the earth. So are we going to continue to believe that those are ET craft? Well, I guess it's still possible it could be, but it's more probable that it's a rocket body, you know? And that's the biggest thing that we've debunked. We've gone on 
um, expeditions with very famous people who, you know, were seeing uh, what appear to be like lights coming on in the sky and moving and then going out and, you know, that th- they're absolutely not flares. Yet when I, you know, go through all the close-up stuff of it, you can see the lights on the plane. And yet the planes were not visible to the eyes when people were looking because they've only got maybe some basic, very weak navigational lights because of being military aircraft. But yet when you zoom in with infrared and night vision and full spectrum, you can see everything. You know, if it was an ET craft, you'd practically see the windows on the craft and them waving at us. But, you know, as Mark says, the sad part is, is we debunk most of everything we've seen. So we've only got a of really, really, really authentic things, which we still can't say are ET craft. Unless, you know, unless an ET craft comes down, it lands and, you know, beings come out and you go over and shake their hand. How can you ever say it's an ET craft? Okay, so I ask every ufologist this question because I've I've mentioned it several times on the podcast. But is there something about uh, ufology that you would like to see change? And I find there's like a thousand sites out there and Instagram or Facebook pages, and they just post you know just crap. It's not good content, and some people out there just absolutely believe everything. What would you like to see change? Yeah, for me, I mean, we're actually seeing it change now, but, you know, most people will agree that the biggest thing is they would like the the veil of secrecy to be dropped completely and for governments to release everything they know. uh, That would be the biggest one for me, because if they did that, then all the information about, you know, contact that has been made with governments would be released. Um you know, everything that's humanly known would be released. So for me, that's the biggest one. Um, You know, for years, it seems ever since Roswell, ever since they made that first lie at Roswell and recanted their story and claimed that it was not a craft, that it was now a a weather balloon, a, a crashed weather balloon. You know, it seems that by telling that big lie then, they had to tell even bigger whoppers after, and it's just been one whopper after another. And it get it got to the point where, you know, the average person, if they even were truthful to what they've seen and described, they were they were labeled crazy and they made fun of. I mean, it still happens today, but you know, that veil is coming off. I mean, look at the Tic Tac incident off of um you know, the all that stuff has been released off of the coast of San Diego there and Puerto Rico and so on. It's coming. And I would like to see it happen a little faster. You know, I really believe that, you know, the president south of the border is such a crazy guy that he would have just for spite, he would have released everything just to just to shake the bushes. But um, for me, it's really all about making all the stuff that has been held secret for so many years, you know, they don't have to release it overnight, but, you know, release it a little faster. Something that we've taken a lot of pride in is the fact that we're not armchair ufologists. You know, we enjoy being in the field. 
um, we have a, a deep respect for the history. I mean, you can't you can't disrespect the history, the the you know the evolving of 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 UFO of, of ufology over the last fifty years. Um, but a lot of people, there's a tendency to you know, stay in the past a little bit and, and just sort of cite older, you know, cite older um, sightings and experiences and things. And, and again, stating that we have a deep respect for that, but it would be great to see more active in the field ufologists. I mean, <clears throat> we enjoy being out in the field with experts. You know, when we're out there with a Dave or with Ricardo Gonzalez or, you know, Paula Harris, I mean, it's wonderful because they have this deep understanding. They've had contact experiences. They're coming back to places that they've been. So they're, it's rich with the, the, with the history, but you're also combining the present day with it. It's like, well, why are we here? We're not here to just do an expose on what has happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or, or longer. We're here to, to complement the, the rich history of of, of, of of contact with a present day, almost, pardon the word, but new age approach to ufology. Meaning if you really want answers, go out and get them. You know, go out and get them today. You know, like you can go to these hotspots. You can, you can go to these places. You can have your own experiences, document them. If choose to look at them or if you if you put them on a usb and and put it into a time capsule in the middle of the desert for the next generation 50 years or 100 years from now to discover that's great at least it's timely at least it's up to date at least you're not just reading what somebody else wrote or watching what somebody else has experienced you're actually impassioned enough as a ufologist to say I'm 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 going to save my dimes. I'm going to save everything up, and I'm going to go someplace, and I'm going to invest my time, and I'm going to see what I can experience myself, document it, and keep it current. And that would probably be the only thing I would have added to to what Rob said. And adding to that, I mean, um, you know, your expeditions, the costs, and all that. It's not like you guys are full of money, and you could just throw you know money away at this. Like you guys have to save and plan your stuff out like this isn't uh cheap absolutely absolutely so what challenges like obviously you're dealing with both your schedules and you know the financial aspect the travel uh logistics and all that so um what have you found were the challenges and how did you overcome that you know we've been kind of fortunate i mean on two fronts the people that we have been exposed to that we have had experiences with understand that our passion is in contact and our passion is to document the contact. So we, we were lucky. We get, some, we get some wonderful opportunities and deals and people offering us different things to help the cause, you know, in addition to the fact that Rob and I have prioritized this in our lives. You know, we understand that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, we have been gifted with in a very short period of time. And we've had some really amazing people tell us, like, you fast tracked yourself in the UFO world because, you know, now, like, for example, I'll, I'll drop this on your podcast today. You know, we have a, a wonderful expedition lined up at the end of the summer 
her to be in the field with Grant Cameron. Now, Grant, he's a, he's a, he's a 35, 40 year guy who's had the inside track of some of the most major sightings throughout Canada. You know, he's, he's been a consultant to the presidents, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's written many books, done many, many things. So when that email came through to Rob and I saying, we want to go out in the field with you. And we were like, how exciting a day was that, Rob? You know what I mean? Like, oh, that made us realize that we're, we're literally melding the past, with the present, and we've got the reputation. So Rob and I kind of looked at the idea. We've looked at the whole thing over the last five years. And there's, there's just a lot of mutual respect going. We prioritize it. And we work really hard on making sure that we know exactly when good timing is for an expedition. When can we get there? How can we get there? Um, Rob's amazing because he gives me the opportunity to let me work through the logistical side of things. We make the decisions together as far as where we go, how long we stay. It's a lot of prep. But in the end, it makes a big difference when it comes to, you know, the resources required to do to do something like this. Yeah. And you're not wasting your time either because you pre-planned everything. Mostly everything, eh, Rob? <laughs> Mostly. A little caveat around that one. Right to start, and Mark is great from the logistical side. He, he plans the whole thing. And we kind of work together, but he's the boots on the ground that actually puts it together. And uh, you know, from the flights to the driving to the people we meet to where we're staying and everything. Right at the beginning, for about the first year, I would say, he had everything planned almost to the hour of, you know, we're going to meet somebody at 10 o'clock for a, uh, an interview for an hour. We're meeting another person for lunch at 12. We're meeting another person at 2, then another one at 5. Now we're going sky watching, and then tomorrow morning it's this, this, this. What we found was when we planned the entire trip on an hour by hour basis it, we shot ourselves in the foot we found that the opportunities that happen spontaneously that come out of the woodwork are usually pure gold in other words you know we we planned our trip to australia and 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 we left we left a certain amount of time for spontaneous events the very last day, Mark left open, and that was when we had our premier sighting. Um, you know, we got invited up into the mountains, and we could maybe get into that at another time, but um, what I'm getting at here is if you plan everything and don't allow any time for spontaneous things to happen or the universe to come through or even if it's the ETs themselves trying to arrange a contact with you and you don't have any time in your schedule to meet them, it's not going to happen. So, you know, we leave, we try to leave about half of the time open because when we're out in the field with people and we meet people, all of a sudden say, you know, you've got to meet my aunt Sally. She came face to face with an ET being or, you know, you got to meet my dad or my uncle John or my son, and it takes time to now set that up. And if we had no free time, we'd have to pass. So some of those or many of those things that happen give the most fantastic interviews and open us up to even better hotspots 
So, you know, yes, we plan it, but we only plan about half our itinerary and half of the places we're going to be. We leave the other half open, open to the magic of, you know, spontaneity, the universe, and possibly the ETs themselves arranging things for us. Have you guys ever considered doing like uh, cattle mutilations or abduction cases? Is that something you guys would ever contemplate getting into? I don't think that Well, I can say that we're, we're, we're more interested in meeting benevolent beings, like, you know, ETs that are here to help us. And I've always drawn this comparison. It's kind of like, you know, the cities we live in, we know that there's areas that are not so great in our respective cities and where there, there might be higher crime, you know, there's bad things that happen. Well, I don't specifically go to those areas of my city that are like that. I choose to get involved with positive things. I'm aware that, yes, there's a certain part of London, Ontario here, that you shouldn't really go to. You could find yourself in the middle of drugs or in the middle of crime or, you know, bad things. Now, you know, it's the same with this whole phenomenon. We realize there's maybe other sides to it that other people are fascinated by, but ourselves, we're not really interested in there, in that part of it. We only want to search out and connect with benevolent ETs and experiences that are positive around that. Only because there's a vast number of experiences you can have. So if you get to choose, why wouldn't you choose the whole positive side of things? That's that's my take on it. Well, that's solid advice, uh, Rob. Uh, Mark, did you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, have we had that happen, Jason? Where you know, I mean, we we've had a, a one-on-one sit-down conversation with Travis Walton. You know, we, we sat with him. I mean, he's the most famous, one of the most famous world in the world as far as being abducted. But when you actually talk to him and you ask him about his abduction, he would call it an abduction. He calls it an ambulance call. You know, that he had that experience. He hurt himself during the experience and they brought him up into the spacecraft to heal him. You know, so you, you realize that there's kind of like a flip you know, on either side, you know, you, again, you make the choice, you personally, as a human being, you make the choice that you want, you want the benevolency, you want the message, you want to stay to the light. I mean, I think, and I think people are all different. You know, I think we're born different. We have different backstories. You know, if, if, you've had a, if you've had a certain kind of childhood or a certain kind of adulthood, your experiences could take you in different directions. For Rob and I specifically, we're family men. You know, um, we're we're light and love guys. You know what I mean? We we just feel it that way. All of our experiences have been from a really good place. Have we been in situations in different parts of the country that have been a bit dangerous for us? Yeah, we have. I mean, we've <clears throat> escaped strikes in Ulica and. We were even on a side road and men got out of, out, out of a vehicle that we didn't know were police officers holding guns. You know, like we'll find ourselves in these situations, but we just don't, we definitely don't seek them out. 
Yeah, I'm a bit envious of, of people like yourselves that get to travel uh, the world and get to see these places. Now, once you guys are done with BC, are you planning on going anywhere else? You know, after BC, we'll come back. We're, we're turning this year, so far anyways, this year has become, you know, North America, you know, or, or basically Canada, you know, the opportunity. So what we're doing is <clears throat> we've done had the opportunity to go up to Tiverton. We're going to have the opportunity to go to the Algonquin Park area. Um, we're going to be doing British Columbia, and then we're going to be spending a couple of weeks in Manitoba with Grant Cameron. So we're kind of getting that opportunity to be a little more, home, a little bit more homegrown. <laughs> Rob, that crazy equipment that you have, you, you basically built a transformer. That's what you built. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. I mean, Mark, Mark's got documented on me carrying that thing on my back on Easter Island, eh, Mark? Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that. It made my whole day. It was like the 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 adventure style of what we're trying to do. It's like you just, yeah, it's uh, it's it's some hardcore work. You guys must be ripped. <laughs> he is. Mr. Freeman is. Yeah, I do. I do work out in the gym because, you know, there's a lot of weight. I've never actually measured the weight of all the equipment on there, but I I would suspect it's somewhere around uh, 50 pounds, to tr- maybe 60 pounds of equipment that's uh, on that tripod altogether. And uh, we've been around the world with it. We've carried that thing on wagons. We've carried it on our back. We've, uh, oh, my gosh, it's just, it's just been everywhere. And <laughs> I remember... Well, I remember, you know, the, the thermal camera was in my carry-on, and I think it was Australia, was it, Marcus? Was and I had it on top of the luggage, and the, um, the, the luggage cart, it hit a little crack in the sidewalk, and the suitcase went flying off, and it hit the ground, and I thought, oh, my God, a $55,000 piece of equipment just smacked into the ground. But, you know, we put it on the tripod and it, it still works perfectly today. Oh, but that must have been a long ride to your location, worried about it the whole time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a nervous day. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, we've, we've gotten lucky with the equipment. And I'll just make one other comment, too, because once again, we always say, you know, the lights in the sky are what attracts you or is what attracts you into this phenomenon. but what we've experienced as a result of all our travels and trying to capture things in the sky, it's all the crazy phenomenon that happens around you. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times our camera batteries have all gone dead. The entire tripod shut down, including all the iPhones in everybody's pocket. And, uh, you know, we've had, you know, Mark was recording we were at a, a conference in Lachlan, Nevada, Paola's conference, and an L.A. crew who are documenting this kind of stuff, we were doing an interview together, and Mark was filming us being filmed. You know, it was being filmed, me and the other guy talking. He had his film crew there that were the main ones. And the guy asked me questions about what kind of things happen when you're trying to document this stuff. And I said, well, a common one is all our batteries going dead. Well, I no sooner said that, and two of the camera people that he had, they they looked at the host and they says, my my batteries are almost dead, and you know they were fully charged and they should have lasted the whole day. And this was in the morning and they had just started filming, you know. So Mark's even got that documented on film, 
of some of the strange things that you can have happen, like the malfunctions that happen spontaneously, but all together at once. It, you know, there's so many different sides to the phenomenon that happens all around you. Uh, I've been at a, a Greer expedition where, you know, we're looking at things in the sky and I happen to look over and a tree lit up just as if somebody had a flash camera. And because I was brand new into the phenomenon, I thought, oh, you know, with the famous Greer, he's done this setup and he's planted a flash in the trees just to get everybody going. Well, after the group disbanded for the night, I went over to that tree to see if there was a hidden flash camera. There was no hidden flash camera. But as that expedition went on during that week, he described all all the things that can happen around you, Jason. And honest to goodness, there's more cool stuff that can happen around you and with you and to you and to others around you than in the sky. It's absolutely amazing once you get into this phenomenon, what can happen. Yeah, do you think it's time that we change um, the word phenomenon to the happening? Because it's happening. It's no longer really a phenomenon. Most everybody's seen one at this point. That's a good point. Well, that's true. Uh, a, phenomenon, a phenomenon is something that's kind of what? What is the definition of a phenomenon? Does anybody know? I think that's just like something unexplained. You know, like it's just a, something completely unexplained. Um, but I understand your point, though, Jason, at the same time. <clears throat> it's like now it's, it's so it's not it's frequent. You know, it's not an irregular deal anymore. It's not that irregular. You can find something pretty much every day that's uh, pretty substantial. Yeah, see, my understanding is that we, we've all, like, I think most people have seen something or have had, had experiences. And it's sort of like in the back of our minds or consciousness that this is normal. Um, we just accept it at the time, but we can't accept it afterwards. It's like it doesn't fit the mold. Um, it doesn't fit into what we think reality is. Yes, I agree with that. I think it is definitely a mold thing. It's like, well, I still got to eat. I got to work. What am I going to do with this information anyway? What am I, what can I do with it? We, we definitely know what we want to do with it. We want to make contact and we want to be face to face with the ET beings. We want to hear what their message is for Mark and I personally. We want to hear what their message is for Mark and I, as guys that are doing documentaries and can get the word out to the rest of the humanity, the rest of the human population, and we want to hear the message from them, how we can take care of this world going forward. So that's what we want to do with the information. And just before we close here, guys, is there like a, a social media or anything that you guys wanted to promote um, where people can find you? I'd say probably the biggest shout outs, Jason, would be to, you know, we love it when people <clears throat> get interactive with us on Rob Freeman UFO World Explorer YouTube. Um, we also have Rob Freeman UFO World Explorer on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. We love the interaction. You know, we love people telling us their stories. We love them telling us about experiences that they're having in different parts of the world. Um, <clears throat> so those would be the best venues to reach out. And, you know, they'll be updated on everywhere we are, you know, everywhere that we're going in the world. And, uh, you know, 
keep that kind of energy going would be wonderful. And where can people find your documentaries, guys? Uh, where can they look to find uh, the work that you've done? Well, we've got, our, we've got our documentaries that are coming out. We have a four-part series that's going to be released um, of our early stuff, you know, our backstory, our origin. Um, we have a four-part that's going to be coming out on iTunes and Google Play and all of that kind of stuff fairly soon this summer. Um, but we've also got two back-to-back documentaries that we're doing. We did do a documentary in Peru. Um, it's called Making Contact Messages from the Andes. And then this new documentary that we're doing is going to be our Canadian adventures, you know, but both will be coming out in 2020. So we can just let you know. And uh, but if, if anybody goes to the, you know, to the Facebook or the Twitter or the Instagram or even YouTube, they're going to get updated. That's awesome. No, um, like I said, uh, if you guys want to be on the podcast again, or if you're coming down to BC, definitely uh, just let me know. I'd love to buy you guys lunch. And no, like I said, it's, it's fantastic to see the work that you guys have done. And it's influential. I mean, it motivates me to want to do what you guys have done. And you've really made my my week, my month for being on this podcast. And uh, I'm very, very thankful for, for you guys being on. Um, the work that you do is, is influences me and others. And uh, this is huge. So thank you very much. And thank you so much. Well, we also appreciate it, you know, you're doing great work and you're out there and you're investigating and you're bringing your word and your intelligence and your experiences to this podcast. So uh, congratulations on that. And uh, thank you very much for having us on. Mm-hmm.